0: Hi friends, uh, this week we want to take a bit of an interlude in our Ephesians series. Uh, this is partly because as we move into the second half of chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about how God is reconciling people together as Jew and Gentile. As our current new cycle has revealed, our society is still one full of divisions, perhaps not as much between Jew and Gentile or Roman and Barbarian anymore, and yet the parable uh, parallels are very similar. 20 years ago, our MB Confession of Faith, in the pastoral application, uh, our leaders of the conference wrote, Racial, ha- racial hatred and division are serious, serious issues for the church to address in our time. If the church does not move to confront racial division and demonstrate an alternative, our message cannot be taken seriously. And so today in our teaching, I want to take up this call from our MB Conference and address the issue of race head on. Uh, as we talked about in Ephesians, God's plan for the climax of all times is to unite all things, including all people, together in Jesus. And so God is building a church that is diverse and united in Jesus. This is where the cross of Jesus is taking us. And so before we head into chapter 2, we want to ask, like, what is the problem? And am I working with God in the unifying of all people, or is my discipleship, my thing? Thinking, my actions actually moving me away from God's plan for my life and for the world. And so, as just a way of entering into this topic of approaching it, I read this article this last week called What Was a Nazi Church Service Like? Great title. Uh, and so, now growing up as a kid, like Nazis were the worst, right? And Hitler, Nazis, um, pure evil, all interchangeable ideas and words and ideas for me. Now this is still true, Uh, Nazis, racism, white supremacist ideas are all evil, and I want to be on the record of condemning all forms of white supremacy, and Nazis in particular. However, as I've gotten older, there is a historical reality that troubles me deeply. It is, as historian Doris L. Bergen has put it, Christianity permeated Nazi society. Nearly 97% of Germans at the beginning of World War II were Christian. Most of those, the vast majority, were Protestant, Orthodox Christians, like you and like me, and yet something happened within their faith that allowed for those atrocities and support of Hitler and his evil. Does that trouble you? Because it really troubles me. I am unsettled by the idea that Protestant, Orthodox, Jesus-loving Christians can be so, so evil. Now, if Nazi Germany... If was the only example of this in our history that'd be one thing and we'd say well that's a sad aberration and yet in many ways nazi germany was just another example of hundreds of years of history in which the church has aligned itself with racist white supremacy and white cultural ideals to bring about the destruction of other cultures and races there's a slave castle in ghana where you can go tour and they show the the Dank, poorly ventilated dungeon where they would shackle 1,500 slaves together underneath in these horrible conditions, and they could hear their British captors singing praise and worship songs to Jesus in the chapel just a few meters above them. Some of our great Puritan theologians and pastors, Christian preachers like Jonathan Edwards, who are really famous, held slaves, owned people at the same time as they are celebrated for preaching this gospel. The church was fully involved in the genocidal conquest of indigenous peoples in Canada and the United States. It was done using biblical language with strong theological support. Christianity and colonization and the demonization of all non-white European culture was nearly inseparable for most people, for most of Western history. The Jim Crow era in the United States that saw thousands of innocent black people pulled from their homes, tortured, and lynched for no other reason than the color of their skin in front of crowds of white families was done with the support, blessing, preaching of pastors, elders, deacons, and the lay people. In 1946, nearly seven out of ten white people surveyed believed that the African American person was being treated fairly. 1946 was also the height of the Jim Crow laws, segregation, the terror of the KKK, the open torment and intimidation of white citizens council, and regular violence against black people in America. Like Nazi Germany, Christianity permeated America at that time. The racial atrocities of the past few centuries cannot be separated from the faith and teaching of Protestant evangelical Christians. As a white Christian, I find that really disturbing. Drew Hart is a voice that I've been listening to a lot and learning from, wrote an incredible book called The Trouble I've Seen. Uh, I encourage you all to buy a copy, support his work, read it. Uh, In that book he writes, the church urgently needs to understand the realities of racism better than it has previously. Christians must do a better job of thinking, analyzing, and ultimately transforming our racialized lives into anti-racist and anti-hierarchical ways of life that conform to the way of Jesus. We must learn to see and understand racism all around us so that we can faithfully resist being complicit in its patterns. Once we are able to see it, we must engage in, in initiatives of deep metanoia or repentance, initiatives that change us from racialized accommodation to resistance. So I want to begin here with three different uh, terms and ideas that I, I find helpful for us to think about in this Context the first word is ethnicity and so in her book the very good gospel Lisa Sharon Harper writes that this is like the biblical word Goy or am in Hebrew ethnos in Greek and she writes ethnicity is created by God as people groups move through To move together through time and space space and time Ethnicity is dynamic and developed over long periods of time. It is about group identity heritage language place and common group experience And so there are many different ethnicities between Afro-Cuban, or Afro-American, Afro-Caribbean, Irish, and Irish-American have different uh, ethnicities. Ethnicity is God's very good intention for humanity, as Harper writes, and it is good. A second word then is culture. Culture is implicit in scripture but never actually used. Culture is a sociological and anthropological term that refers to beliefs, norms, rituals, arts, and worldview of a particular group in a particular place at a particular time. And culture is fluid. We have Canadian culture. Canadian culture is different today than it was 90 years ago as our norms, our arts, our worldviews are all shifting. And then finally there's this word race. And so when we talk about race, meaning the different color of, the, of our skin, we have to realize that um, this is different than ethnicity. This is different than culture. There are, um, yeah. So it, it is it is different, and and this classification of people by the color of their skin did not exist at the time of the writing of the Bible. Uh, race. This classification of people that some people are more superior or less superior based on the color of their skin is something that comes late in the history of the world. It comes along with the process of colonization and the rise of the scientific revolution. And so in the 17th century, you have a, a Swedish botanist and zoologist named Carl Linnaeus who classified humans based on the color of their skin. With white men having the most desirable human traits, uh, we describe things like active and acute and adventurous. And black people were classified lower and were with words like crafty, lazy, careless. And so when we talk about race, we are talking about a human construct designed to justify, support, And build up oppressive hierarchies in which the white male is God's chosen to have dominion over everyone else else what we're saying is race is about power and who gets to wield it race this separation this division of people based on the color of their skin is recent it is evil and it is about power Hart writes The global practices of European domination, colonization, and conquest in the Americas and Africa in the 16th century required ideological justification. Otherwise, such brutal and inhumane practices against indigenous peoples and communities would undermine Anglo-Saxon Protestants' image of themselves as an innocent Christian nation. How can you enslave people? How can you rape people? How can you kill whole communities and steal their land and their labor and call yourself the new Israel? How can you commit atrocities and claim that God has given you this land and that you are holy and you are good and you are pure and you are clean? Well, the way you do it is you make those that you are killing and raping and stealing from less than human. Understanding this, this power and dominion, this construction of race is important because a dictionary definition of racism being personal prejudice or hatred of someone of a different race doesn't deal with the issue that is at work. Actually, what happens if that's your definition of racism is it protects people who are actually racist because they can say, no, no, I don't hate anybody. It also protects those of us who might operate out of unconscious racial bias that we have these racist thoughts or ideas but we just think oh no like that's i have black friends i have indigenous friends i couldn't possibly be racist what if we let sociology define what we mean by racism in that World, we would define racism as a racialized systemic and structural system that organizes our society. When we look at Canadian culture through this lens we discover that we live in a highly racialized society in which the white majority generally dominates and controls most of our organizations. Uh, we can see this in the average white person's life uh, with the way we self-segregate we generally live among people who look like us. Our church is made up of people who look like us. Our phone contacts, our dinner guests, the authors on our bookshelves generally look like us. Now, of course, there are exceptions to this. We live in a multicultural city, in a multicultural country, but what is normal? What is ethnic? Right? I already said this in, when I talked about Canadian culture. I said, well, there is a normal Canadian culture, but what I'm saying is there is a white, normal Canadian culture it's different for other people we live in a city in which in a church in which what is normal is shaped by white culture norms and power now this is not a new problem uh, paul writes to the church in galatia galatians two eleven fifteen uh, 15 says when peter came to antioch i opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong before certain men came from james he used to eat with the gentiles but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this, his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a jew yet you live like a gentile and not like a jew how is it then you force gentiles to follow jewish customs and so the kittawa cherokee pastor theologian professor missionary dr randy woodley writes about this passage he says all ethnocentricity racism and cultural discrimination is as paul says in the niv clearly in the wrong all systems that perpetuate these evils are at the minimum non-christian in their approach Our ethnocentric systems are so pervasive today that if you are on the inside you will not even recognize them. But Satan does and he looks for ways he can invade these corrupted systems. If you are listening to this and you are white, let me suggest to you that you and I are so entrenched and caught up within our ethnocentric systems of our day that the first thing we need to do is learn to listen to the voices of those who are not like us and can help us see that we are caught up in ethnocentric systems that are contrary to the gospel. We need to learn to listen to those who are not like us, to hear what they are saying. Drew Hart writes, The magic of all this racial oppression in the 21st century has become is that it has become so sophisticated and subtle in contrast to the overt racism of the mid-20th century that no one realizes No one realizes that they are complicit in the system or that their own hands are dirty. This last line is challenging to me. Do I know that my own hands are dirty? The color of my skin is something that I am rarely confronted with. And let's be honest, for most of us in our congregation, we think of ourselves as normal and other people as ethnic. What is ethnic food in the grocery store? It's not the pierogies and farmer sausage. When we are in the system, we have such a hard time to see things clearly. And yet, in the Ephesians, at the end of chapter 1, Paul called the church his body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes more about this metaphor for the church. He writes, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts would have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So can I suggest that what we are seeing in this cultural moment is that the smaller parts of our body are hurting. As the majority of people in our culture, in our congregation, we do not have the option of ignoring the voices that are in pain around us. Dr. Alexia Salvatierra says, to take the body of Christ seriously is to say that if there is pain in the finger, there is pain in the body. And so we need to listen well and we need to respond. It's important to hear from Paul that as the majority people in the church we need our brothers and sisters who are the minority around us. We saw this at the beginning of this teaching. The white evangelical church has failed on many fronts to faithfully follow Jesus. I am deeply disturbed at the rise of white supremacy and nationalism in many who claim to follow Jesus now, today. Now is there faith? genuine and sincere? I don't doubt that. However, the sin of nationalism, the sin of racism is not being addressed, and we have been blind to the log in our own eye for too long. We need to honor and listen to the voices of those who write and speak and preach and teach from the margins of power. For many, many years, orthodox normal theology has been defined by white men. And all other theologies have been black theology or womanist theology or Latin American liberation theology. The implicit message is that white people, or more accurately, white men, are the neutral judge by which all other theologies must be evaluated. Everyone else comes with perspective. uh, And how true they are is defined by how they compare to European, American, white male reading of the Bible. Here's an example. What is the correct posture for prayer? Well, you take off your hat, you bow your head, you close your eyes, you fold your hands, right? That's how you pray. That's normal. Is it? Osagi theologian George Tinker writes that kneeling and folding hands are not Indian postures of prayer any more than bowing the head. So when the missionary says, let us bow our heads and pray, Indians have to wonder what the biblical injunction is that demands bowing of heads, kneeling or folding hands and whether or not that now has become the only way to pray. How do we pray? Is the way we pray biblical or is it cultural? Why do we stand behind a pulpit, sit in rows, have chairs at all? Uh, as my friend Dallas Pelly has said, in Cree culture, you would meet sitting in a circle, not in rows. However, for many years, what is normal, how we worship has been defined by white European ideas we have not listened to other cultures we have ignored the prophetic words of correction that have come from the global south from black pastors and theologians we have not sought to celebrate different ethnic and cultural ways of worshiping jesus i'm not saying that there's something inherently wrong with the posture of how we pray or how we meet to how we worship those that's fine but what i am saying is that if we are not open to the other voices and ways of worshiping God, we become blind to the systems around us and the destructive impact that they can have in our faith in Jesus. We have turned Jesus into a white man, and far too often we have seen our faith in Jesus compromised by racist practice, attitudes, and theologies. And that is an inarguable historical fact. There is good news uh, is that jesus can change us the spirit of god can renew minds and transform our understanding discipleship is about following the crucified messiah and so jesus invites us to repent and to turn what are we going to repent from uh, drew hart gives us a place to start he says this means that white christians must renounce the desire to control other people's lives must reject the innocent savior complex which sees everyone but oneself as in need of transformation when deliverance and intervention is needed the church looks to god so let's repent of our control of our power of our savior complex of the way we have forgotten to pray for our own transformation back to galatians paul writes you foolish galatians who bewitched you before your very eyes jesus christ was clearly portrayed as crucified i would like to learn just one thing from you did you receive the spirit by observing the law or believing what you heard and again dr randy woodley writes what is the perversion at galatia two teachings of jewish believers One, that practices of Jewish culture, especially circumcision, justifies them before God. And two, that Gentiles as well must observe Jewish culture. Paul's argument in the book of Galatians for freedom in Christ applies to cultural divisions too. The purpose of worshiping God in our own culture is so that we may be free in the expression of our devotion. We have Judaizers in our day too, metaphorically speaking, although they do not usually reflect the culture of Judaism, but rather of Euro-American cultural Christianity. I think that one of the reasons that the sociological definition of racism has really stuck with me is that I see this power imbalance with so clearly within the church and theology. Uh, There is clearly power has been used to define what is right, what is normal, and to minimize other and silence other voices from the margins. Uh, I have been one of those who has been bewitched by Euro-American cultural Christianity. It, it doesn't take much imagination to see how the way this happens within the church also happens within other structures and powers in our culture. James Cone wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. In it he writes, White theologians in the past century have written thousands of books on Jesus's cross, without remarking on the analogy between the crucifixion of Jesus and the lynching of black people. One must suppose that in order to feel comfortable in the Christian faith, whites needed theologians to interpret the gospel in a way that would not require them to acknowledge white supremacy as America's greatest sin. Churches, seminaries, and theological academics separated Christian identity from the horrendous violence committed against black people. Whites could claim a Christian identity without feeling the need to oppose slavery, segregation, and lynching as a contradiction to the gospel of America. And then Cohen says that the failure of America's greatest theologians to say anything about violence and white supremacy, it takes a lot of theological blindness to do that. Especially when they claim to worship a Jew who was lynched in Jerusalem. And what he concludes with is this, he says, What is invisible to the white Christians and their theologians is inescapable to black people. So how do we wrap this up? We don't. Uh, this is simply a start. I, I have barely begun to scratch the surface of all that there is here. And I hope for that those of you who are white, you would be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable with the blindness to racism around us, uncomfortable with the way our Christian faith has so often been compromised by white supremacy and used not just as a tool for, but justification for rape, murder, slavery, torture, lynching, theft, greed, and so much more. And as those realities sink in, I hope that you will begin to see a new vision. Revelation 7:9 says, After this I looked, and there was a great cloud that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, Victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The story of God does not end with one homogenous group of people. The story of God ends with many cultures, many tribes, many nations, with their own arts, and cultural, and ritual, and celebrations, and ceremonies, and language, and practice, worshipping God together as one. In Ephesians, as God unites all things together in Christ, it is not to make them the same, worshipping in the same way, but that these people will be unified in their worship of the victorious Christ. Peter was still a Jew. Gentiles were still Gentiles. But they worshipped Jesus together in unity. As we learn and we grow and we understand, let us take seriously Paul's words to us as a church in 1 Corinthians 12. Let us recognize that as the white majority in our church and culture, we have an added responsibility to give dignity and honor to the minorities around us. The responsibility is on us to surrender our control and our power to give other, others the opportunity to speak and teach. It means engaging in the suffering and the pain of the minority cultures around us. If they are suffering as a body, we should be suffering too. Not a flattering picture uh, story of myself, but an eye-opening experience, nonetheless a learning moment for me. As the NBA returned uh, to play this year, the players made a strong show of, of supporting Black Lives Matter. And quite rightly, they were saying, uh, look, yes, we will come. We will put on a spectacle for you. We will entertain you as basketball players. But if we are going to do that, you need to uh, recognize and give value to my life as a black man when I'm driving my car and in the store in the same way you do when I'm on the court. If you want to celebrate me as an NBA player, you must value my family, my cousins, and those who look like me. And then basketball resumed. And there was all the the Black Lives Matter on the court, and they wore social justice messages on their backs as they played, and we all began to enjoy basketball again. And we sat back, and we were entertained. And after a few weeks, I was watching a Raptors game with a friend of mine, and I made a comment about how, you know, the Black Lives Matter, I kind of wondered, like, is the NBA NBA gonna remove that uh, for the playoffs? Like, how long is this really gonna be going on for? And then, Another black man, Jacob Blake, was shot by the police in the back and the NBA players all went on strike again. And what it did for me is it reminded me again of my place of privilege in society. That these things can take a back seat. Uh, We can do an Instagram blackout picture and then continue to live our lives and go on Uh, and and not think about it anymore we can wonder why are they still wearing these social justice messages on their jerseys the reality is that this does not end in a week this does not end with one sermon this is a history that is four centuries long uh, divisions between people that goes even farther than that so we are going to keep talking about race forever as a church this is not a one-time sermon we're not going to forget as a church we are called to be different we are called to ruthlessly examine our lives and the ways in which racism might live in our hearts and then repent of it look i'm racist you are racist we have these things within our hearts and our minds and we have to confront them so that we can move forward we we are called to confession for the ways in which our faith has been compromised we are called to live in a new way that honors and gives dignity to the minorities around us please Brothers and sisters, listen to the part of our body that is crying out for justice, for healing, for honor, for dignity. Recognize the ways in which we each contribute to their situation. Use your power, your voice, your time, your money, your vote to give honor and dignity to the whole body of Christ. To close, 1 Corinthians 12 to, 2 to 27 says, You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. Let us live like this is true. Grace and peace.